Welcome to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with Opera Holland Park's director of opera, James Clutton. In conversation with creatives and collaborators, we explore the process of putting opera on stage and how the artists involved approach their craft. Hello, welcome to From the Producer's Office. I'm James Clutton, director of opera, Opera Holland Park. Today's guest is a, a lawyer, philanthropist, uh, particularly in classical music, and founder of the Rosenblatt Recitals, Ian Rosenblatt. Good morning, Ian. How are you? Hi, James. I'm well. How are you? Uh, yeah, okay. It's a, it's a tricky question, but um, how are you coping with it? <laughs> well, you, you want me to tell you how this? I really feel? I'll tell you how I really feel then, shall I? <laughs> yeah. How are you coping <laughs> with it all? Okay. I'm coping. I'm coping like everybody is, but I think we're all in the same place now, which is that, you know, where we're, everybody is. I don't know anybody who says they're fine. No. Um, everybody's fine, you know, in their business, in their personal life, the way yeah. they feel about things. But but thank you for asking, James. I'm, well, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> but one of the things I find, actually, seriously, though, is, it, you know, one can be fine in little pockets of time. It's almost like everything disappears. You know, I finished late at work, as you do, and you have a gin and tonic with, with your wife, and you think... God, it's just nice. This is, and you forget about all the other stuff for a moment, but then it comes... Well, I'm very pleased for you. I don't know whether I'm exactly the same way. I was reduced the other night, having finished my normal rant to my wife about how terrible the world was. <laughs> uh, I cheered myself by watching The Return of the Pink Panther, which I strongly recommend to very everybody. Good. Well, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good sonnet. It's, uh, it's a great film. Well, listen, we'll go, we'll go through a lot of things, as hopefully, as we do, but I'm going to start... Um, the same question I ask everyone that comes on here is that uh, right at the very beginning, the kid, because um, obviously you've got a big love of music. How did that come to you? Was music around in your family when you were growing yeah, up? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was so on both sides of my um, of my family, on my father and my mother's side. I was, I was, ex- I mean, I was unbelievably fortunate. So really, in terms of um, opera, particularly, it was on my father's side, and then music generally with my mother. My mother. My mother is uh, my mother's brothers were actors, and um, um, and uh, one in particular, Clive Swift, yeah. quite well known, yeah. uh, you know, when he was alive. <clears throat> and so, you know, I was brought up with, um, you know, he used to play the piano. We were all singing around the piano. I learned uh, all the Gilbert Southern Patter songs, which is probably uh, child abuse if it was uh, these days because it was forced at me. And then I used to do my party pieces when I was six, you know, doing the That's a whole new podcast out there. You don't get, don't get me, don't get me going, don't get me going. <laughs> uh, on my father's side, which I mean, my father particularly was the you know first generation uh, 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 immigrant. His, his parents were immigrants from Russia, and obviously there was a Jewish cantorial tradition. Um, Singing was treated really as a contact sport in my family. My father was the youngest of 12. They all, um, four, uh, four sisters, uh, the rest were brothers. The brothers all sang um, and yeah, all sang all the time. And two of them actually for a while were cantors and sang really well. I mean, my father had a fantastic voice. Um, well, I say it was fantastic. He told us all he had a fantastic voice. And um, <laughs> and but but my 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 um, kind of lasting uh, endless memory from my childhood uh, really was my father used to go to work very early in the morning and at five o'clock every morning he would play uh, the same recording of Traviata 
um, when he was getting ready to go to work. So that's how we were all woken up. <laughs> and it was always, it was always, it was the same recording. Which recording? Uh, Begons and Savile and Begons in Merrill. And oh, uh, we were, we were, uh, but it was only always just the first side of the, he never flipped the LP over. We only, <laughs> we got, the first, we only got side one of the first, of the first LP. <laughs> I think so I've that was, that was it. We hear that record. Actually. Oh no, it's, 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 um, but you know, so my brother and sister uh, did not respond well to that particularly. I, I did. Uh, and that was really where it all started. Then my, my dad, you know, because obviously opera, uh, uh, opera is is the sort of generic is the art form if you like mm -hmm. but he taught me and showed me that you can refine that down particularly when it comes to voices and there was something there was something about voices which were an art form in themselves and the, mm. you know a generic you know a tenor is not a tenor just the tenor you know lots of different types of tenor there are mm. you know lots of different types of baritones mm. etc uh, sopranos etc etc um, so he used to play this, you know, it's, I used to, we used to be subjected to him putting the needle, scratching the, all, every, all the records I got from my dad are unplayable because I say scratched. Uh, he used to slap the, slap the needle on the, on the record. You'd get four notes of a singer and then you had to guess the singer. You had to guess the singer. <laughs> you had to guess nice. the singer. So really? that kind of tuned my ears in to right. be able to recognize recognize voices. Well, you're talking literally, you put, you put the record on, say, guess who the singer is. Three notes, and you go, right, who's that? Wow. <laughs> wow. Know. Well, no one knows singers so well then. Well, that's why I'm quite good at singers, because, <laughs> because I got I got to uh I got to understand that, you know, there were, you know. Uh, as I say, a tenor is not a tenor, just a tenor. There are different types. And uh, how old do you about here, more or less? What are we talking for you, age-wise? Oh, this started. This started as early as I can remember. Uh, uh, you know, literally, uh, I was probably this was probably going on when I was probably six or seven, and wow. then, and then almost, and then, uh, of course, you know, as we, none of us like to think that we're anything like our parents but of course we all probably are somewhere and of course I did exactly the same thing with my own children <laughs> <laughs> and what and again out of my three uh my three I've got three children two stepchildren out of my three children one of them uh, uh, uh caught on to it as well and we still exchange all the time probably four times a day we're sending each other clips that's absolutely brilliant. I love it. I love it. So that's that's obviously all the joke inside. That's a very early age to get used to that sound world. Um, was it uh, immediate that you started actually enjoying that? You know, you're laughing about it being a, a test and everything. But you started enjoying the music fairly yes. early yourself. I found it thrilling. I mean, I really found it thrilling. But but there was music, as I said. I mean, there was all kinds of music being played all the time, and I was very fortunate with my. As I said, on my mother's side, with my grandparents, we were brought up in Liverpool, <clears throat> and my mother's parents um, were uh, subscribers to the Liverpool Philharmonic concert series, okay. and the the home matches were every Saturday, every other Saturday, yeah. and so every other Saturday, my grandparents would take me and then my brother and sister with as well. They had a box of the fill. And we mm. would, they would take us every Saturday night. 
Right. And then, but the and the big inducement was fish and chips on the way home. Can't argue with that. It's a package. <laughs> you can't argue with I mean, that. I mean, hold on, I've got to go and write that down. That's a package to sell. That is totally fish and chips on the way home. And I have the most fantastic memories of the Liverpool Phil because it was in the days when Charles Groves was the conductor, and um, you know they had the they they. It, um, they, they still do, but the most amazing, I mean, I remember seeing Paul Tortelier play the cello, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kim Chung play the violin. I mean, extraordinary soloists used to come yeah. Yeah. Uh, to the fill. And that was just, a, you know, I just, that was just a normal, that was my childhood. Yeah, it's that lovely. It. Really. I mean, there's still a great orchestra now, aren't they? That, um... They are, they are. And it's a wonderful hall. I mean, it's funny because because uh, I obviously I left Liverpool in 1977 when I came mm. to university here in London. Um, but um, and I hadn't been back to Liverpool really at all for for donkeys years. I mean, donkeys years until actually I became um, I became I got a, I was asked to go go on the board of Liverpool museums, which right. then a number of years ago. So I started going back to Liverpool, mm. and of course I went into the fill which I hadn't been in probably for 30 years. And because when you're a child, you know, this it just seemed like the most enormous place. It's the new, yeah. You know, and actually I was amazed at how, I mean, it's not a small hall, but mm -hmm. relative, you know, to many, but how small it was, you know, when you when you actually see it as a as a grown-up, as it were. Yeah, interesting, interesting. But when you were, um, the last thing on this particular sort of time, because it's, it's fascinating that really, you, um, when you're going to school and everything, you, you're talking about you. This is the sort of music you're listening to, or were you listening to? Uh, no, I was. I was. In well? fact, no, I was listening to pop music. I mean, my big. In fact, during lock, you know, we're all looking for things to amuse ourselves during lockdown. So Emma and I, my Emma, my wife and I, decided we were going to do our desert island discs, and so we did. We did. We put together our desert island discs. And then we had an afternoon when she, she insisted even on playing the intro music to it before, you know, I have explained it. <laughs> and uh, no, I was, uh, my, my was massively into uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and, mm -hmm. and uh, T-Rex with I a bit of Jimi Hendrix, T-Rex in particular. And I still, in fact, it was a couple of years ago, they, they released an album, Mark Boland songs, sung by, you know, covered by other right. artists, which yeah. I still listen to quite a lot. I think they're just trying, I mean, there was just something about Mark Boland and and being kind of 14 or 13. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, he was so far ahead in terms of his image yeah. uh, of, uh, of his time. Yeah. And it, I so I was, I was, I was, you know, um, Kind of obsessed with Mark Boland at Bolan, and at the same time, uh, nicking my mother's knitting needle and the telephone directory, and pretending the telephone directory was a score, and conducting, <laughs> conducting, <laughs> conducting I mean, in my that's room. A far, that's a offer, isn't it? Well, I was always fascinated by looking at the conductor and saying, I didn't know what a score looked like, but what I could see, you could see, was a conductor on the podium. You know, and they just flicking pages, and they paid. I mean, it was like every time he, you know, the the, the baton went down, he churned the page, <laughs> and I thought this must be like one note on each page. I didn't realize <laughs> that it was all the different, <laughs> all the different instruments. So I was flicking pages over like crazy. So you know, it didn't take that long to go through the telephone directory. 
Excellent, excellent. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one more thing on that. Was uh, good. So I've got to ask you now. Um, did you ever have hair like Mark Bolin then? In the I wish I did. I'm like now. I actually did have hair. I had quite a lot of hair, uh, but it was never curly. That's for sure. <laughs> but it was certainly it was certainly you know aspired. It was a it was an aspiring hairline. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Aspiring Bolin hairline. He's a good looking guy, Mark Bolin. He was a good look. He was definitely he's a good looking guy. guy. <laughs> um, so you know all this uh interest and everything and 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 early love of it really but you never thought of it as a career that that path no not at all not at all but well look i was forced forced to play the violin from the age of six which i'm sure is not an unusual situation <laughs> and i played it actually i did play it through till i was about 17 and i got up to i, I, I got up to probably grade eight standard by then uh and I scratched my way through a school orchestra and the highlight of my parents, uh, grandparents' uh, pleasure of, uh, was me uh, doing the uh, duet with my teacher in the Four Seasons with the school orchestra. Right. Um, you know, um, so, but, but life got more interesting by the time I was 17, as far as I was concerned. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't particularly, you know, I wasn't particularly good. So I had no talent, uh, and uh, and uh, no, so there was no chance of a musical career at right. all. And the law was that was that uh, was that a long a long time coming, or was that a thing you decided relatively late that that was going to be the direction? No, I mean it was kind of fluke, really. I mean I had no, but you know it's like lots of people, you know, when you're a, you know a teenager, you don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, my father was in business. He was um, misguided enough to think that the law was a safe profession, that, and everybody he knew that was a lawyer had, you know, was very prosperous, and that lawyers never went bankrupt or anything like that. <laughs> and therefore, you know, uh, what I wanted to do, uh, genuinely, because I had this on my mother's side, this theatrical background. Uh, I used to go and do play. I was in plays at school, and I used to be in a youth club. Uh, uh, where we had, a, there was a dramatic society, we used to play there. I actually wanted to be an actor, and also because my my mother's brothers were both actors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, that horrified my father, the idea that I was going to, you know, um, kind of take after them. And and uh, he was, you know, thought I was crazy, but it was, it was really, it was really because it came to doing A-levels, and then you have to fit in the 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 Ucker form, which mm. still which existed then, uh, and decide what you were going to apply to do, and I thought well, I'll play it safe with you know a medieval history and archaeology somewhere, which meant you only needed an E or two E's or something, mm -hmm. and I shoved in law at LSE because I had a couple of cousins who'd been to the LSE, and then miraculously I got some A levels, wow. and and I got an offer from the LSE, so mm. that was it. I thought, well, I'm not missing this. This is this is my passport out of Liverpool. It was all about getting out of Liverpool, really, because Liverpool in the 70s was a grim place. Right. Um, and I just, you know, and I thought, I kind of woke up when I was about 15 or 16. I thought, you know, if you don't get your head down and pass some exams, you're going to be stuck in Liverpool like a large number of members of your family, you yeah. know, working for your father or your uncle or something. Yeah. And this is not the life I wanted. So... Uh, I, I can still remember getting being put on the train at Runcorn Station by my parents 
when I was uh, 17 right. <clears throat> to um, come down to London to yeah. to go to university and just thinking this was the greatest thing that I was going to say it was a great it wasn't a bind it wasn't a big it wasn't a big uh, uh, it was, was a big fantastic. step though obviously no but for me I was just I was just like this is it and then basically I came to London and I um, <clears throat> and I never went back right right and it was obviously, just fabulous yeah, so obviously, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, obviously, um, you, you know, your father had the right idea that, you know, don't put your son on the stage. <laughs> Mr. Rosenblatt, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the, the law obviously, obviously has worked for you. You've been very, very successful with your own, uh, with your own company. Um, but one of the things that always intrigued me when we've talked over um, lunches or, or drinks or whatever is that, You've always gone for things slightly outside of the the norm as well. And one of the stories I've really uh, enjoyed talking to you about is uh, uh, about when you represented the veterans from the South Pacific uh, yeah. nuclear test. Can I just? I mean, I know the story because we've talked about it. But can you just give a quick sort of recap on on that what we what you were doing there? Well, it ended up not being very successful as it turned out, but it but it's was... still an amazing thing to have tried to do. Ian. Well, what we tried to do was take, you know, I mean, there's a big lesson there, you know, taking on governments is um, not uh, not for the faint-hearted, let's put it that way, not, not for the faint-hearted, nor for the shallow of pocket either. Um, so, I mean, it was really, it came about because, um, obviously, I, I and my, my law practice, my business is, is all corporate, is all, you know, we, we represent business people and wealthy people and wealthy businesses, it's, it's only about commerce. And um, because you know that that's lucrative, yeah. uh, uh, but but I've I've always wanted to try to do other things outside outside the law that that um, uh, that kind of look. It's very. I don't want to. I look. I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be disrespectful to the great career I've had. Yeah. But I do this for money, um, and and I like to do other things that not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, not necessarily make money, uh, and this opportunity came. This has been a case that been lingering for, you know, for donkey's years. There'd been these nuclear tests in the 1950s, uh, in the most famous being Christmas Island, or this was actually not directly to Christmas Island, where uh, military veterans, now veterans, but military personnel, witnessed all these explosions going off. You know, there were I don't know 50 of them, I think, probably in total, um, and. Um, uh, and, a, and a lot of them have become seriously ill, um, died, and you know those that survived have continued to be ill or got ill. And and in some cases, it was thought, although I don't think ever quite proven, that the next generation, their children, had right. also become ill too. Um, and uh, various people have tried to bring this case, you know, for forty years, yeah. without any success. And then uh, somebody got in touch with me. Uh, because there was a law firm who were handling it, who were closing down or something was going on. And they said, look, you know, would you like to look at this? So I looked at it and then uh, I didn't think that it was something that was really going to take a huge amount of time or resource to be to be truthful at the very beginning. And I do remember a fateful day when one of my partners who returned for some court application to do with it came in to see me and said, Ian, you have to make a decision and you have to make a decision now we either get out of this or we have to hire 30 people, take some more office space, tool up with IT because this is going to go yeah. big. Uh, so I decided we'd try that and we'd do that. And that was because the sheer numbers that the government could throw at it. 
Yeah. I mean, you're, you're yes, co correct. The, the number we had a you know there was a big cohort of, of uh, veterans as well, mm -hmm. large number of people. Um, plus, it's extremely complicated. Again, without going into all the legal ins and outs of it, but this was a case we were trying to bring. The government said forty odd years too late. Right. Uh, they were claiming that it was barred by time. Right. Um, so, and then there were all kinds of problems of proving direct connection between people's illnesses, you know, leukemias and and, and other cancers, directly correlated, connecting them to the the, the uh, a nuclear uh, explosion yeah so it, it you know it ran for a number of it ran for a number of years and we won we won in the first round uh, when the government tried to knock it out and then unfortunately we lost in the court of appeal and then we went to the supreme court and it was um it was pretty devastating because we you know the supreme court uh, have a panel of seven it was a seven-man court mm. uh, and woman, one woman, so six men and one woman. And um, we lost by one vote. Yeah. It's just, uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a shocker. It was a shocker. But I'm afraid that was... I think it's an amazing thing to have done. I, I think I've said this to you privately that um, one of my uncles was out there and more or less sort of said, yeah. put a pair of sunglasses on, you're going to see something right. in a minute. They, did, they, said, they said, put a pair of sunglasses and turn your backs. Yeah. So, so like the radiation only go only goes through the front <laughs> yeah. doesn't go through the back <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but i think it always strikes me that i know ultimately it wasn't successful just one of the most amazing things to have really tried to do that um let's go back to the music 2000 you decided to launch your own recital series uh, rosenbach recitals which was incredibly successful uh, and for a number of years i actually know this but i don't know for how long but it went on for 18 18 well really i mean kind of started in 99 properly in 2000 and then um finished in 2017. but reading the list of singers that you uh presented a lot of them their first break here as such yeah sure in london particularly and the number of people i saw of yours at um uh, St. John Smith Square and everything. Uh, I mean, it was incredibly successful. Did it? Did it? Was it meant to be that big and that uh, with that longevity at the beginning, or at the beginning was well, it? Let's just do a couple and see what how it goes. Well, well, no. I mean, it was. Look, I, 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 back in those days, which I mean, obviously the internet was going twenty odd years ago, but it wasn't quite like it is now. But you know, I was I going back to you know what I was saying about my my upbringing. It, mm. For me, it's all about voices that, you know, that's an art form in itself. Um, and I, you know, if you wanted, you, you know, you could only hear what you could hear, um, depending on what was, you know, what the casting director of Covent Garden, mm. um, if you wanted international singers, yeah. depending on what the casting director of Covent Garden, who he decided he was going to book, mm -hmm. which would, to my mind, was always pretty, you know, they were always great, but by and large great, but limiting. And I knew mm -hmm. there were great voices in the world, but the only way you were able to hear great voices outside of uh, Covent Garden was A, from the Met broadcasts on the radio, yeah. uh, or, or in those days, pirate tapes that used to circulate amongst the cognoscenti. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you get a tape, because obviously you've got to listen to this. This is, you know, a recording of so-and-so from Palmer or this one from, mm. you know... Mm. From La Scala, etc. Uh, so, whereas now, obviously, everything is, you know, yeah. pretty much everything's available on on, yeah. on the internet. 
So I was really keen. I mean, I all I wanted, I was just hungry to hear great voices, and I knew I wasn't getting great voices. And but I had no idea how does it work. I had no idea about how singers' lives were, how their schedules mm-hmm. operated. I had no idea what to do, how agents worked, mm-hmm. how uh, opera houses uh, booked people, how mm-hmm. far ahead. I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, I had not a clue. But I had, um, but I kind of very, I had a fluky, it all started because I had a fluke, a really fluke introduction to somebody who sadly is dead now called Helga Schmidt. Who, and Helga Schmidt uh, used to be, she, she was the director of Covent Garden for, in the eight, late 80s for a bit. She went on to, uh, uh, to uh, where was it? It's over uh, Valencia. Yeah. Uh, and, um, she had a, basically a black book of every. I mean, if you wanted to speak to anybody in the world of opera, she knew she had their, She was on, you know, she had them on speed dial. And her, she basically started her career, I think, as von Karajan's assistant when she was like nineteen or something. Right, nice. So she'd been. She was there present when Domingo did his audition for von Karajan. You know, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I had an opportunity to just sponsor uh, a young tenor called Jose Cura who was going to be doing a concert at the Festival Hall with Domingo conducting because they'd mm-hmm. just done an hour. He'd just done an album with Puccini Arias with Domingo conducting. And I, uh, it was, a, uh, you know, somebody recommended that her to me and other, they, they were looking for a sponsor and um, we met. I said, I'd do it. I was, I, I, the way I mentally justified it was because at the time I was, for, I was about to be 40 mm-hmm. and my law firm was about to be 10 years old. So I thought, well, 10 years old, law firm, I'm going to be 40. This sounds like a good idea. You know, I can then make it kind of, you know, mentally make it all kind of work out. Uh, so I did. And then Domingo decided that he was too busy. Uh, I think he got offered a huge amount of money to go and sing happy birthday to the Sultan of Brunei or something. So he pulled out. And, and then we had the most extraordinary, extraordinary thing with Kura that we did. The concert took place. I did sponsor it. And Cora not only sang, but he also conducted the orchestra at the same time. Wow. And it was just the most, I mean, frankly, ridiculous. But um, he was a, a huge sensation at the time. Yeah. Huge. So I then, then my eyes were opened to how this worked. I knew Helga. She could get me anybody I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, let's do this. Let's do this properly. Let's mm-hmm. try and do a, a concert series. And so I said to her, you know, can you help me find these people? And she said, well, who would you want, darling? Mm-hmm. So I just, well, I'd like to start off. I said, my first class, I really like the tender Giuseppe Sabatini. She said, oh, I will speak to him. And then that was it. She did. And he turned up. Yeah. Uh, and then the second one, I remember him. So the Sabatini was December 2000. And then I had heard... Uh, on a, uh, a recording from Pesaro, uh, I can't actually remember the opera, but I'd heard a recording from Pesaro, and there's this uh, small tenor role which has got like you know ten bars in it, and I'd heard this voice, and I thought, well, who the heck is this guy? He's wonderful. Looked on the back, and it was Juan Diego Flores. In this was I'd listened to this in like 1999 or something. So I said, you couldn't find this guy somebody called Flores, could you? And she yes. said, fine. And then, so we booked him for, so we had Sabatini in December and Flores in February, 2001. Amazing, amazing. And then of course, as we know, he then went on. 
Well, what, what strikes me is, though, is it's got a real genuine, in, even in this conversation, a genuine connection between that and what you're doing when you're a kid with your, with your dad putting the, the needle on the well, rest of the foot. Completely. I mean, and, and it would be, you know, I, you know, we all want to impress our, well, most of us probably psychologically, without getting too Freudian, we want to impress our parents. <clears throat> uh, so <clears throat> I wanted uh, this, you know, I, I, I was, I wanted to impress my father. And so my, you know, my parents used to come to every concert, meet all these people. They became an integral part, my mum and dad, of the whole, you know, of the whole kind of recital, yeah. resume recital scene, as if, if you if you like. And yeah. a lot of the singers became personal friends and yeah. still remain personal friends, and they got to know them all and and stay with us and all that. And so it was all part of giving my part of not only me having a different uh, kind of a different life. To, the, yeah. to my nine to five life yeah. but also I'm sure I mean it was I'm sure deeply down there probably not too deep actually was I wanted my father to enjoy this yeah lovely really lovely and they're so successful I mean you put someone I, I didn't remember this till I was reading up before this but you put someone on on Sky on the TV uh, at one yeah, point yeah I um, did I did that was those are the days. Those are the days when Sky actually had a budget. I mean, they didn't pay me any money for it. But what they right. did was they um, they agreed Sky Arts that they would film. They would make. Um, I think they did four or six. I can't remember. But they would make four or six programs, mm. and they had Susie Klein as the presenter. Lovely Susie, wonderful Susie. Yeah, absolutely. And they made them into, so they filmed the concert, but they also then made them into, I think, about 90-minute programs with Susie presenting and interviewing the singer mm. and the company and the pianist as well. And mm. into, you know, and then editing all that in. Yeah. So you didn't just, you know, turn on the telly and then you just got yeah. blasted out for an hour. Yeah. Um, they made it into really, really, and, and it was um, I was it was thrilling because, you know. You know, Sky Arts used to, they probably still do, but they used to then just repeat stuff all the time, you know. Yeah. And you could put it on, you could look at the, you know, the the guide, and some nights you just see Rosemount Recital, Rosemount Recital, Rosemount Recital the nice. whole night. Nice. And yeah. it was it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. wonderful. But also, you never really sort of stopped because even though, you know, I, I remind anyone listening to this that still through all of this, you're still running a, a usually successful law practice. You're not actually a, a a theatre opera producer, but it feels like it by this time in the in, in the narrative. Because uh, you started this festival up down in Devon as well. Um, was yeah. that just a natural progression for you getting to know much more about what was going on? Because you've been a lot busy and a lot of producers, to be honest. You know, but <laughs> <laughs> that, well, uh, he said he said sort of with a wry smile. Um, <laughs> but I think if, that was another jump, really, wasn't it? Um, well, I look, had look we. We've got a we've got a house. We've had a house <clears throat> in in Branscombe, on the south coast, for um, twenty odd years, and it's a beautiful place. It's a tiny village. It's you know it's it's basically got a Norman church and a Saxon forge and a Saxon bakery and a and a couple of pubs. One of them, you know, goes back to sort of medieval times, and that's and and a, and a beach, and that's it. Um, so and a village hall, and so I thought, you know, it would be, wouldn't it be just great to be able to put on world class, world class artists, mm -hmm. not just singers, um, in a tiny place like this. Yeah. So I did, 
Um, and obviously the the opera gala bit uh, was was the most starry because obviously I managed to get uh, singers like Angel Blue and uh, Francesca Mary, Lucas Salsi and you know Hailish Time and all that to come to Branscombe, mm. Stephen Costello and Eileen Perez. Yeah, great. Uh, to come to Branscombe. I mean, and, and I, it was one great, I mean, really funny story is that Lucas Salsi is, you know, the, you know, the, one of the great Verdi baritones of today. Um, he was doing a gig in Zurich. Uh, the gig for, for me was on a Saturday night. He was in Zurich until uh, on Friday night. Uh, it, I, this had all the hallmarks of being a disaster. And, yeah. uh, and of course, guess what? He gets on a plane first thing on Saturday morning. The plane's delayed, um, so eventually we had to we had to delay the evening. Um, he was singing. He was kind of singing with a, a soprano, Serena Gambaroni, who was married to Francesca Mary. Anyway, he, we had to delay because he was late, and he finally got there. But he like turns up in a taxi. And he's no idea where he is. He's got absolutely no clue because he hadn't. You know, he you know he literally arrived. He went to the back of the village hall, stuck a bacon sandwich down his neck, stuck on a bow tie, and then he had no idea when he walked out whether he was walking out to an arena of ten thousand people <laughs> or, or or what. And instead, he found himself confronted by like one hundred and fifty people sitting on deck chairs. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's it's part of the you know so you and I've talked about this sort of thing uh, over many over many years is this you know bringing top class art to people is a, is an important thing and 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 you know a lot of people talk about the elitist thing which I never go into but it's well, they still keep it in certain areas a lot of people that talk about that but then just spreading it out and just putting in good uh you know our mutual friend ben johnson does a festival in it in sure. it's just like give give people the stuff and they will go if they're presented with the right thing well, in, in the right way well yeah absolutely and people did come to this but i got i, I have to say i got a bit petulant because to that very point unfortunately you know, we were presenting a program <clears throat> um, which we tried to make as you know, broad as we possibly could. But you know, we had uh, you know everybody from you know we had the Sakani Quartet, we had you know we had uh, solo pianist recitals, we had cello recitals, um, we had uh, uh, Miss Hope Springs, who's a friend of Altai Jeffries, who's an amazing um, creates this character called Hope, uh, which is a cabaret act. Uh, we had Leo Green and his band, uh, where at the last, you know, after the concert, the opera concert, uh, for everybody, including all the artists, to go and have a party. We had the band of the Royal Marines marching through the village and going up to be. We had all the, <clears throat> so we tried to make it as broad as we possibly could. But, you know, I went to the, you know, one of the pubs. We went to one of the pubs and said, you know, would you mind putting out flyers? And they said, no because we don't like all this elitist crap. That was the precise words. And he got a laugh <laughs> because when I, and I finally, I finally had enough. I had finally had enough. When we, when we had a, we used to do a tea time concert too. Um, and one of them was Susan Bullock doing fantastic. I mean, you know, uh, songs that they were called songs my father taught me. So they were, you know, but it was everything from Sondheim through to jazz to, you know, 
standards. Really? You, know, you know, and I remember some guy coming up to me and going, you know, you're a very rude man. And I said, well, what have I done? All you do, you put those reserved signs on all those seats at the front. And I said, I do. And he says, well, that means that people, that's not fair because people can't sit at the front because you take them all. I said, well, I am paying for it. <laughs> and I thought, you know, life's too short. You know, the pub aren't interested. I'm getting grief. I'm trying to do something that is enjoyable. I'm getting grief. I, I, we did three we did three seasons and I thought that was the, after that, I thought enough. And then and to capital, the following year, the Branscombe Players, the local amateur dramatic society, put on a show in the village hall called Not the Branscombe Festival. <laughs> so I thought, well, there we go. I've been put in my place. I won't be doing that again. You can't win the you can't win the you can't win, you can't win anybody down there. <laughs> but let's bring it before we finish, let's bring it right up to date because um you know, as you said at the beginning about the lockdown and um the internet and everything, you know, you you, you still didn't stop. We, you put this wonderful series together, uh, online series of recitals um, uh, for Target of Ovarian uh, oh, Target of Ovarian Cancer. Yes, Target of Cancer. I wasn't getting the name right, um, um, and that was uh, you know a stunning Petrock and Susie uh, presenting, and uh, yeah. a great group of artists. Um, did you enjoy doing that? Loved it. I mean, that was really because you know a year ago when all this started, if you remember, and we were all sitting at home. I mean, we had no idea. There, were, there was, we had no idea how long this was going to last. And, and yeah. it was all the remember, it was all going to be over by spring, and then it was all going to be over by summer. And, but what was becoming very clear was that uh, art, artists, uh, performing artists, were utterly going to be utterly screwed. Yeah. And you know, people that that I was talking to um, from all over the world, you know, whether they didn't matter where they were, you know, uh, was you know used to traveling 10 months of the year and being booked for five years, all of a sudden, I had no idea whether they were going to have to retrain and do something else. So um, um, I then just thought, well, um, and it was the B, if you remember, there was the, <laughs> there was the Met did a sort of, did an online, yeah. sort of online gala, which was just awful uh, with, um, various people singing in their tracksuits from their kitchens and stuff. And I thought, well, I don't want that. So anyway, I contacted 30 people, 30 singers, um, all, all who were former Rosemount recyclists, most of whom, a large number of which were, uh, were personal, become personal friends. And I said, look, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this. I've got a guy who was Simon Weir. He used to do all the audio visual, all my recitals were recorded. Yeah. Um, filmed and recorded. Um, I said, he's going to send you a technical guide. Who knows how this is going to work? Um, you know, you can basically do all this on an iPhone. Um, and then you, you know, you choose what you want to sing. I want three or three, three numbers each, yeah. four numbers. Um, and you know, they did, everybody did it. Um, everybody got paid mm -hmm. and, um, and because, anyway, we don't want to talk too much about that, but that's a whole whole, whole other conversation about. Yeah, but it is a big way. conversation, absolutely. Uh, um, and it was amazing 
not only how much effort the, the, the artists put in, um, not just into their performances, but also how they try to make these uh, film themselves uh, in, you know, rather than just standing in front of a camera and just belting. You know, a lot of, lot of them, you know, had tried to have edited and they'd taken it from different angles and put it all together. I mean, Stephen Costello from in uh, New York, his wife, uh, Yuna, is, uh, uh, is one of the first violins in the Met Orchestra, or she was until she got fired. Yeah. And um, the she accompanied him with the violin, but she laid down, you know, six different violin uh, parts and then put them all together. So when you listen, when he's singing, he's accompanied by, it sounds like a... Right. Like right. an old string orchestra, yeah. you know. So that was wonderful. And then we had so much material that we were then able to uh, theme them. And then we were able to put all this material into themed concerts. Yeah. So we created eight separate concerts, you know, Verdi, Del Canto, Verismo, yeah. um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I couldn't have done it without Serena, who I mentioned before, Serena Gambrani, who not only is a wonderful singer, but she's extraordinarily organized and very, very remarkably for an artist, extraordinarily businesslike too. Right. So she was there, you know, basically keeping the artists, you know, disciplined, you know, putting it all together, making it, helping me make it all happen. And yeah. then we put it on to, we put it out on two platforms and audio only and a, yeah. And an audio visual, right? Yeah, and we've raised 65,000 pounds for target ovarian cancer so far. Right. It's amazing, it's amazing. I was going to ask you about that because I think that you really put that together well. Because there is a problem still, we're still all behind, uh, as, a, as an industry about people being prepared to pay for stuff. Um, mm. you know, we missed the boat on that ultimately 15 20 years ago, or whatever, because. You know, people pay for films and TV shows on Netflix or Amazon all, all sure. the time, and we just we just sort of missed it. So I think it was really stuff we've put out in lockdown, for example, has got a cost to it. Some of it's been free, sure. but uh, but I think you did really well on that because and also having the charitable thing. But you know, James, the point is simply that I mean, it's really you know, when, if you ring me up and say, and I'd like your legal advice, I'm going to send you a bill. Yeah. Right, because that's what I do for a living. Stop with my next question. <laughs> so you, yeah. So let's just make that one really clear. <laughs> but the the point is, this is what I do for a living. Exactly. You know, and the it's a little bit like you know, uh, it's like you know, if you happen to have a friend who's a dentist, yep. you know, you're sitting having a drink, go, oh, I've got a bad tooth. Just have a look in my tooth. The answer is yep. no. Come to the surgery and have a look at your tooth. You know, if you're a comedian, I'm sure a comedian can go and tell me a joke. Well, that's yeah. what they do for a job. Yeah, these people, this, these are these are artists. Yeah. Just because they've got a gift, you know, they this is what they this is how they pay their rent. So yeah. nothing should yeah, be for I, free. I completely agree. I mean, even on our film of, uh, you know, we've only got one full film of any of our shows out there, the Ballerina Mascara, which has got a price on it. Um, yeah. Uh, it's 699 uh, only because when we did all the workings out and the percentage to Vimeo it actually came out this initial price came out uh, £6.66 and I thought I can't charge the number of the beast <laughs> that, that would not be a good look <laughs> so we're in the 699 <laughs> but that is incredibly broken down with absolutely everyone that works on the entire show in wigs and makeup and, uh, and tech yeah. everyone on it it's only yeah. tiny parts of course but 
we just you know it's difficult to sell that on because people think oh i could see something else for free so they so they don't i know i know and even and even you know the the uh what we what i put together which is for charity uh it's you can get eight concerts for 30 quid yeah yeah i mean but people think oh that's a bit steep well you know, you go out to it. You know, you you go out and buy the. You know, in London, you go for a couple of beers and a hot dog, and you spend thirty quid. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a problem. I think that we've got to get over it, and I think there just needs to be a bravery from a combined group of uh, of companies. You know, refusing to sort of just put stuff out there um, and, and do it. And it's not in a bad way. It's just that that's what, as you as you rightly said, that's what we do, and they ask what the artists do. I mean, I think that we've tried to do so much work with freelancers this year. And for me, um, you know, one of the, everyone's saying you're working so hard trying to make a season happen in all this. We're outdoors. We've got a better chance than a lot of people. But some people say, why are you, you know, you're on it so much. And well, ultimately, though, it's, it's my job. But we've also got, you know, in the region of probably 250 freelancers relying on getting any work here by putting it. That's worth it's worth doing. It's worth going. No, but of course, but you know, but but James, you know, you and I have talked about this before. We probably don't want to get, you know, we'd be too controversial. But you know, there is a there is a conversation to be had about. In, this is my personal opinion. The uh, the really abject lack of any leadership from the state funded arts institutions. I mean, the state funded um, performing arts institutions. You know, I, I, I'm just shocked. I'm really, really shocked. Um, and, and you know, the only real communication that I have had as a patron of Covent Garden, apart from obviously encouraging me to uh, to stream various things that they're putting out, um, was, a, was um, a round robin from Oliver Mears saying how wonderful an American lady was because she'd left a lot of money in her will to Covent Garden when she dies. And maybe we should all think about doing the same thing. And I thought, you know, great. I mean, if that is as that's as good as it gets, is it? Right. You're getting all the money from the you get your state subsidy, you probably probably picked up, I don't know how much they picked up in terms of, you know, extra grants and all and, and aid and all the rest of it. They've furloughed everybody, they've done the orchestra over in terms of uh, new terms and conditions. Um, they're not paid any artists that, whose contracts got cancelled. I don't know. I mean, and they're sitting in this gigantic building. Um, anyway, I don't want to go on anyway, because I, I mean, can see we're going to get you. Anyway, anyway, shut up. Moving on. <laughs> anyway, all I'm saying, this is a, these are my opinions, and I'm just saying that to contrast the amazing work that you and others in the uh, private sector, if I can put it that way, you know, people who don't rely on state money. Um, to keep well, themselves going, have yeah. done an extraordinary. I mean, you know, look what Waspy's done in uh, Amazing, amazing, amazing. I can talk about that obviously because I think that um, you know those companies you mentioned, uh, you know, Arsene Waspy and Gastington, you know, have had the, the, they've got a different um, methodology. You know, we have to work in very different ways, and you know, they're private companies, as you say, and so I think that presence and doing things, and and I think there's a direct communication with the artist that it's just more difficult in, in the in the big big companies you know you know uh, you know we get freelancers on the phone or not on the phone because they never pick up the phone but on the on email <laughs> um 
And I think that it's just, it's, it's really at the cold face there and you can see things. And if you can say, well, if I can put this project together, you know, we did something for World Holocaust, Day, Holocaust Memorial Day, we're doing some recitals coming up. We can give, and we did a Christmas thing. We're giving some artists some work. We're, we're creating content for ourselves and giving our audience that are missing some stuff, something to, something to watch and listen to. So it's a sort of win-win yeah. for everyone if you can just get it together. I mean, but obviously it takes a lot of, uh, effort at the moment because of the safety restrictions and of everything course. but it's, of course. it's really worth it I mean, it's really worth it um linking on to that quickly because we need to we need to wrap up but you know you, you, you're talking about that can't we keep talking why we got to wrap up <laughs> we go passionately very passionately on that um have you ever thought about getting onto one of the boards of a of a of a, of a, of a i mean i know you're the museums and everything but an arts company because I, uh, without going into details, you headed up a, <clears throat> um, a mock board to interview me when I was going for a, a job a few years back. Um, I mean, I didn't get the job, so I don't know how well you did on that one. <laughs> but, the, but, um, but also you did ask, and the panel asked better questions than I got asked in the actual interview, ultimately, um, tougher questions and better questions. But, you know, you were you put together a panel to interview me and it was great, Did you know, that sort of thing has it ever appealed to you like being you being able to do stuff yourself no look first of all um, thank you. it's very nice of you to even raise it but i know he's actually asked me for a start <laughs> so <laughs> so that's uh uh it doesn't really matter what i might want but i've never been i did have a slight uh Oh, 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 anyway, I'm going to be controversial. You probably edit all this out, but I was—I did get a tap on the shoulder a number of years ago by a former chairman of the uh, of the Opera House who asked to see me, um, and it was a little bit. And it was, you know, it was about whether or not I might be the sort of person that might be suitable to go on that board, mm -hmm. and you know. But it, the conversation went. I mean, literally, he, he looked at me and he said, um, "How much do you love this place?" And I went, "Well, I." I I love my mother and father and my wife and children more. I mean, I just thought, well, what a stupid question, you know? And it's it's kind of, you know, anyway, uh, I was obviously bullshit, too bullshit, and I, and I never heard back. He, said, he finished with him saying, one day I might ask you to do something as a sort of test. It was like getting one of those sort of mafia, kind of, <laughs> one day I will ask you, I will ask you to do a service for me brilliant absolutely brilliant and I thought, oh, so unfortunately james nobody's asked me to to even apply right okay okay well it's there everyone listening there they is. obviously think i'm too much of a pain in the neck or likely to be too difficult but, but that's a good thing isn't it <laughs> i think so but you don't want to get me started about state funded boards either so we'll shut up that. very good very good. listen we need to do you want you want me to go now don't you i know we need to go out oh yeah get out um <laughs> you've got to make some money and i've got to go and spend some um, <laughs> okay the, um what i was going to say i just can't wait till we're in uh, able to go out again and having you know lunch or, or, or more often these days a breakfast meeting and putting the world to rights and uh of course anyone's enjoyed this sort of conversation um you should see what we talk about when we're uh, in a private <laughs> 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 Not for now. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that very much. Absolutely. But for today, uh, Ian Roseback, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I've been really, really enjoyed myself. Thanks a lot. Thanks. 
You have been listening to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with James Clutton. For more information on Opera Holland Park, please visit www.operahollandpark.com.